Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, he's a favorite. He's a regular. You have heard him advertised right here on this here Hurtel program with his own podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. We'll talk about that in a little bit. First, we're going to talk about something we've been talking about as a people for about 50, 60 years, and it's still a dumb debate. Ethan Brown is back on Hurtel. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, great to see you again. Okay, we're talking overpopulation. You wrote about it in C3. Let's let's back up a little bit of how we got here to this argument. It's actually lessened quite a bit over the last 20 years. But there was a book in the 60s called The Population Bomb. The 70s and the 80s, this was kind of the hot trending thing of, oh my God, everybody's going to die because the world is overpopulated. It seems to have trailed off. But every now and then it crosses paths with the real radical um, environmentalists. And I don't mean the ones that are honestly trying to make the earth better. I'm talking about the cataclysmic, the world's going to end kind of folks. Every now and then they pick up on this. You hear it over and over again. This is not a new concept. You even mentioned in your article, there's writings all the way back into the 18th century about this kind of stuff. Why can we not get rid of this idea? Yeah, like you said, it goes back even further to an essay by English economist Thomas Malthus in 1798, who said that food production grows linearly and population grows exponentially. And at some point, population growth will outpace food growth and everyone will starve and die. And obviously, that's never happened. And we can talk about why. I think that it kind of popped up again lately because on November 15th, the UN announced that the world population exceeded 8 billion people. I think to some that number is scary, to others that's exciting. It's a sign of human development that our medicine has come this far that we can keep that many people around. But yeah, I think that that may have kind of triggered this discussion, certainly was the inspiration for writing my article, and I look forward to discussing it. You just mentioned it, though. Um, look, there's the old joke. You can make stats tell you anything you want to. You know, nothing can lie to you like a stat. The great Vince Scully talked about stats being like a drunk with a light post. It's not really illumination. You're just trying to prop yourself up. Um, those numbers are not all the same. You just mentioned it, the world population, how it ticks up. But, you know, 1.4 billion of that's in China, another 1.3 billion of that's in India. And there's experts saying that it may have already happened, but sometime in the new year, India is going to surpass China, okay? So that's a huge amount of the population just in two of the countries. This is not an equitable thing where you just say, oh, the world's overpopulated. There's vast swaths of the earth that have no human presence whatsoever. Resources are not equally distributed. Countries run differently. There's different economies. This is one of those things really where when you try to make it into a monolithic thing, you really lose all context and you don't get to the truth whatsoever. Absolutely. And furthermore, if we look to where the rates of population growth are going up the most. Very often, it's in more developing communities. There are studies that show that uh, people in poverty, people with less education, very often have more children than people who do not. And that is completely aside from my environmental argument. Environmentally, I'm not concerned about population growth. Certainly from a perspective of these communities, though, looking at their finances, that 
does raise questions. So there's kind of a bunch of different angles you can look at. Yeah, Ethan Brown back with us. You go to a historical examples like Easter Island, like uh, things like in uh, the Mayan collapse, things like this. But again, those things don't happen in a vacuum. There was a sequence of events that led to them. One's on an island. One was, you know, a massive empire that ran into modern uh, folks for the first time. And that had disastrous consequences. There's historical precedence for massive swings in population. Civilizations rise and fall. We know that. You brought it up in your piece in C3. This is something we can look to history and draw some conclusions from, isn't it? I think so. I've gotten pushback on this argument before, but I still like it. I, Easter Island, in my very first environmental course in college, we learned day one that this society had um, basically cut down all their trees and used up all their resources and they collapsed. And this is a common environmental folktale that we'll hear. And I learned in my final environmental course of college senior year that that's actually not really what happened. What happened is at the time that European colonizers arrived to Easter Island, they brought diseases, they brought invasive species, they brought a lot of other really bad stuff. And that was much more so what led to the population collapse. And furthermore, today, there are still descendants of that original Rapa Nui tribe on Easter Island that is said to have so-called collapsed. So I think we can go through a bunch of different examples like that throughout history. But the bottom line is, it's not the same tale of people just using up all their resources and dying. It tends to be a lot of other factors that come in and... I think given that we haven't seen that type of collapse and these are the best arguments that people have, that sort of leads me to believe that maybe that's just not going to happen for the global population. Yeah. For those of you young enough that you didn't see it the first time, wrap a new interesting movie, go watch it, then go read the actual history on it to see how accurate it was. But it is an entertaining movie. You can go watch that. Ethan Brown joining us. Okay, let's get to the to the to the nut of this thing though is the debate here as is so often when we're talking environmental issues or population issues we're really trying to figure out how to balance environmental concerns with economic concerns that's that's where the rubber meets the road on all these eventually when you get down to it the reason the population bomb was inaccurate and the reason all these theories on overpopulation is we know from economics if you want to have a bigger economy you got to have more people you have to have population growth to have economic growth. That's just a fact. So you either have to do it through natural births or immigration, one or the other. That's the only two ways to get it done. We know that's an economic fact. So they don't, they didn't account, and this is the criticism of it. This isn't unique to me. They didn't account for technological change. They didn't account for population change also drives certain countries to be more prosperous, which allows certain countries like the US, like the EU, like others, to go to the poor countries and render aid to them. That's the part that's missing from these, and it gets kind of myopic and a little bit of navel-gazing to the one problem without seeing that, hold on a second, there's also benefits to bigger population. And the environment fits right into that too. I don't even think it's much of a balancing act. The environment is incredible at regenerating. One apple seed can grow a whole tree. One fish can lay a thousand eggs. As long as we are 
using our environmental resources at a pace that does not prevent them from regenerating, which we are certainly capable of doing, then we can see economic growth through our environment. The environment kind of provides the foundation of economic growth in the first place by giving us resources that we can consume. So I think when we talk about a growing population, I don't think we're necessarily locked into outpacing the way the environment regenerates. Certainly there are examples all over the world of degrading the environment, but we can solve these things by just better managing ourselves. It's not an issue of how many people there are. In fact, we have agency to do things a bit better. Yeah, let's take one of those examples that you use in your piece in C3. We're linking to it. Make sure you read the whole thing. He's also got a lot of links in the piece. That's always the mark of a good opinion piece. You can click through a lot of this and read extra stuff. Let's talk China. That's the world's one of the world's largest economy, if not the largest economy. They have the largest workforce of any country. That's inarguable. You use the example, though. Right now, a lot of the conflict inside of China is because they're smart. They plan ahead. They look ahead. They know they've got a demographic problem going forward, even with their current economic power. And that goes back to the 80s and the 90s and the infamous one child policy. And even though the policy has nominally been rescinded, there's a lot of after effect to that. Now they got a demographic problem. Wouldn't you know who won the pony? If you have one child problem, eventually you stop growing. This is an example you used. All of this is within our lifetimes. This is evidence right before our eyes on this very topic, isn't it? I think this is where the overpopulation discussion goes from interesting debate like we can have on these shows to something actually really scary. In 1980, China instituted a one-child policy. Uh, It led to forced abortions, the confiscation of children by authorities, and a horrifying resurgence of female infanticide to the point that by 2016, China had 30 million more men than women. That leads to a whole host of problems for a functioning society. They have since rescinded it. They went up to two kids and then to three kids. But the psychological effect has still taken hold. You very rarely see large families in China. And I find all of that extremely dark, extremely scary. I don't think that uh, certainly a country like the US is not in danger of instituting something like that. But I think that we can certainly see when we start talking about population control or weeding out the herd, it might make for some funny comedy bits that comedians will do. But beyond that, I'd just don't think it's a productive conversation. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. That leads us to my biggest complaint about things like the population bomb model or the Malthusian model or whatever you want to call this line of thought. There's no version of that that isn't anti-people when you get down to the core of it. We know we have the evidence before us. Yes, there are rich and poor. Yes, there are developed countries, underdeveloped countries. But if you don't have some economic growth and development, you can't help the people that don't have it. That's just the way it is. That's the way the world works. Yes, there's an imbalance there, but you've got to have some wealth somewhere to put wealth to somebody that doesn't have it and lift them up. If you start dinkering around with population growth, and I understand you touched on it on your piece, it gets overly concentrated in metro areas. It gets overly concentrated, things like that. That's a debate for another time. That can be fixed with policy. But the idea that you're going to be anti-human, because what this ends up coming down to is, If you start punishing the wealthier countries that are growing, there's not going to be anybody to help those non-wealthy countries growing that does have population issues and does need help. Places like Africa, places like Southeast Asia that are developing that need this help. There's no version of this 
theory that doesn't wind up being anti-human and we need to be pro-human to take care of humanity. Otherwise, you wind up with what you just said about China. And there's lots of other examples in history. You get some really inhumane things going on that are really dark and ugly. I don't see what the point of caring about the environment would be if you buy into this overpopulation theory. Because if, first off, we're talking about helping the environment to help us as a species, right? If we're talking about weeding out humans to protect the environment, you're also talking about yourself. And I just don't understand how anyone would come to that conclusion. But furthermore, if we look to some of the more extreme parts of the environmental world, there are discussions about things like degrowth models or trying to kind of stay stagnant. And what I've always been a lot more compelled by is the idea of sustainable development, where we can, like I said, the environment regenerates. If we uh, consume resources at a pace that does not degrade our environment too far, but at the same time grows our economy, then we can have both. We can grow our economy and grow our environment, and that can continue for generations to come. So I think that when we're talking about environmental policy, overpopulation kind of just makes it a moot point. Whereas if we understand that we as people have agency over our environment, then we can get a lot of good stuff done. Ethan Brown, this is a little dark, so let's talk about that good stuff. Whether you want to call it a green revolution, whether you want to call it environmental progressivism, whatever it is, all that stuff takes money. It takes a lot of money, especially if you're going to go from a carbon-based economy and a fossil fuel-based economy to a green economy, which is what we're doing, is it's going to take enormous amounts of money. And again, there's no way to set, let's say you have completely pure motives for an environmental agenda. And there's good reason for some of it. You're going to have to have a lot of money to pay for that. There's just no way to extricate the environmentalism and the economic realities. You're going to have to bridge that gap. Now we're debating it because if you're more conservative, like, look, that's a long ways off. We need to have some bridge stuff. I know our more progressive friends are like, no, let's rip the bandaid off, do it now. We can have that policy discussion. But again, there's no way to get the economics out of this. That's why you got to focus on the humanitarian part of it, because you just said, well, I don't know why folks do it. I'll tell you why they don't do it. It's because it's easier to rant about the economy and it's easier to rant about environmentalism because people are complicated and it's a harder thing to deal with. How do we keep these issues people focused? Because policy wise, just, you know, common sense wise, if they're not people focused, people aren't going to be involved in it. How do we keep them people focused so you don't fall into that China trap or some of this other really bad stuff we're talking about? All of the environmental work I do through my podcast, through my reporting, is solely focused on how to make life better for people. I actually was really not an outdoorsy person growing up. I've since come to appreciate it a bit more. When I first learned about climate change, I was really, really overwhelmed because I was like, how the hell do we deal with this? And it it was just so much. But as I learned more, I think... My focus always became 
what makes life better for people, what makes life better for me. I could even take a selfish approach and find solutions. And I think that when I approach it that way, I can find a lot of areas where the environment and the economy or the environment and justice or the environment and health are very much aligned. In the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report from earlier in 2022, they took 43 different climate solutions, compared them against the, I believe, 18 sustainable development goals for 2030, things like end world hunger, create innovation, end poverty, gender equality, all good stuff for people's lives. And they looked to see whether there were synergies, trade-offs, or a combination of the two. And they found that hundreds of those, uh, it was over half of the combinations were all synergies and only 12 were all trade-offs. Um, that to me is really exciting. That's a big part of why I've been excited to be part of this climate conversation, because if we were having this discussion 10 years ago, yeah, it's a war between the environment and economy. A lot of these technologies had not gotten to a place that we could feasibly implement them yet. But today we're in a much better spot and much more exciting spot. And that makes me excited to be a part of it. Yeah. Ethan Brown, let's talk about that excitement for just a second, because you know, when you talk about these issues on your podcast, The Sweaty Penguin, you use a lot of humor and you use a lot of comedy because, and you touched in it on your piece, people just get overwhelmed with it because it's either doom and gloom or we have to do this right now because the earth's going to all fall apart or you get the other side that's going, well, this is all a big scam and it's all just a money making thing and it's a new religion and whatever. And both of those things are true in small doses on the extremes, but there's also this wide swath in the middle where we can have some conversations, right? You mentioned it to close your piece out in C3. You said, you know, people just get overwhelmed. How do we cut through the noise on this stuff to find, you know, not just the policy things to discuss, but finding the people that are of good faith enough to have the discussions with that aren't the doom and gloomers and aren't just the everybody's crazy. How do we turn down the noise on this stuff? Because it is overwhelming to a lot of folks that don't understand all the ins and outs because this stuff's complicated. That's exactly why I created my podcast, The Sweaty Penguins. That's exactly where I was. I was way too overwhelmed to even get into it. And it took me kind of forcing myself to take some environmental electives in college. And then I was like, oh, this is maybe something I can get my head around. Let me do a dual degree with it and then start trying to communicate this to others. So the Sweaty Penguin starts from a perspective of humor, which I think can get people in the door, especially young people such as myself. But from there, I think one thing we do very well is really just try to take bite-sized pieces. We'll do one topic at a time, whether it be a food, an animal, a specific fossil fuel project, a, a theory that we want to discuss. We'll bring in an expert. We'll talk about it. We'll present the facts. And we're doing it from a context of the fact that we are making progress. The people are not going extinct on Thursday. We can have these conversations in a reasonable framework and then we also discuss not just how these issues affect the environment, but also the economy, health, justice, security, et cetera, and how it's affecting just people's day-to-day -day lives. And we talk about solutions in every episode too, which I think is important, not just existing solutions, but also where we could go in the future. I think all of those strategies that we do on the podcast are things that I'd like to see more of in this climate world. And I hope that I don't claim the sweaty penguin is your one-stop shop for all climate things, but I think we can be a good introduction for people to get into the conversation, start to learn about it, and then go forward and research more. Yeah, Ethan Brown. 
did his school on at Boston University. Not that you can tell by that giant two-thirds <laughs> of the screen plaque that he's got over his shoulder if you're watching on the YouTube channel. Free plug for them. Um, but you do good work, my friend. Uh, you just mentioned the Sweaty Penguin. You also do a lot of writing. Uh, you do that in a in uh, conjunction with PBS. That's a good get. You're also one of our great young voices contributors. You got a lot going on, my friend. Let folks know where they can actually find your stuff, find the sweaty penguin, follow you on social media, keep up with you until we get you back on her tell again, my friend. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Ethan Brown, five, one, five, one. You can find the sweaty penguin, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, all that good stuff. Uh, you can find sweaty penguin on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin where you can support our show, get bonus content, get some merch. So yeah, go check us out. And thanks again for having me, Andrew. Yep. You'll hear the ad right here on her tell happy to support our friends. It's a cool program. It takes it a completely different angle. Make sure you check it out. Ethan Brown, always happy to talk, sir. We'll talk again soon in the new year. Have a great holidays with your family. You too. Take care, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.